God made a covenant with his people, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And there's a lot to that covenant, but one important aspect of it was a choice that they would make. And the choice would either be blessing or cursing. If they obeyed God, they would be blessed. If they disobeyed God, they would be cursed. There's a very real sense in which the book of Judges shows the outworking of that blessing and cursing that God promised to them in the Sinai covenant or the Old Covenant or the Mosaic covenant, whichever you want to call it. Now, what's fascinating about it, though, is that even though Israel was so chronic in their disobedience, the love and the mercy of God reached out to them again and again and again. Not only because he loved them, but because he loved you. And I genuinely mean that. I'm not being flippant about that at all. God's faithfulness in the days of the judges is connected to you. Because if Israel does not survive as a coherent people, as in a nation, until they can bring forth the Messiah, then the Messiah never comes. And you and I never have a Savior. It's just sort of the big picture of what we see God doing. It's not just for Israel in the days of the judges. It's for you, and so that a Savior could be delivered unto you and me. But we see the cycle again, verse 1, Judges chapter 4. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now, last week in Judges chapter 3, we saw three dramatic judges, these heroic men, and as we'll see tonight, in some cases, women, that God called to the forefront to, to, to rescue the people in a time of great need. We saw three judges last week, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. At the end of Shamgar's time, when he was dead, verse 1 tells us, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. This was this continual drift towards disobedience. When we see that in the Bible, more particularly when we see it in our lives, it challenges us, doesn't it? Makes us realize our great need to stay close to the Lord. Israel kept forsaking God, but God kept working with them. So much so, verse 2 says, so that the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan. God loved Israel too much to just let them go their own way. Now, there's times when you might wish, and I'm sure Israel wished back in the days of the judges, there's times when we almost wish that God would just leave us alone, right? God, let me do my own thing. Let me go my own way. And don't, you know, ring the bell of conscience in my life. Don't let the circumstances crash down upon me. I just want to do my own thing. But listen, God loves us too much to do that. And it's actually a great sign of his wrath and displeasure when God does, in that sense, leave a man or a woman alone. And even when God deals with someone this way, it may take them a good long time until they wake up, until they turn their hearts in repentance to him. Now, I imagine I'm speaking to many people here this evening. I imagine that there's quite a lot of people connected to you and to your life, family, friends, co-workers, whatever it be, people that you know in your life that you know they really need to repent. 
They really need to get their life right with Jesus Christ. And it's been a long time. You maybe have prayed for them for years and years. And you wonder, how long is it going to take? Well, can I just ask you, how long did it take for you? Some of you were really just terrible, rotten, and you pushed the Lord away for as long as you could, right? I mean, this is just how we are sometimes. And it's God's great mercy that continues to contend with us. It took Israel, as it says right here in our passage here, verses 2 and 3, it took Israel 20 years of bondage until they cried out to the Lord. Now, for some people, it takes much longer, but it doesn't have to. The years of your bondage can be ended tonight. That's a good word from the Lord for us tonight. You don't have to go on another tent. What, do you think you've got to fill up 20 years of bondage? Let it end tonight. Now, God ended it by raising up a, a, a hero in Israel, verse 4. And Deborah, or Deborah, you could call it either one. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, some people think it's unexpected for God to raise up a woman as a prophetess, because that's what it says right there in verse 4. Deborah was a prophetess. But please, friends, the New Testament makes it very clear that when God gives the gift of prophecy, he can give it unto a woman also. And it also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that they are to practice it appropriately. The Bible tells us of a lot of other prophetesses. You have Miriam in Exodus chapter 15, Huldah in 2 Kings chapter 22, Anna in Luke chapter 2, and Philip's four daughters in Acts chapter 21. It's just not strange that there are woman prophets, prophetesses in the Old Testament times and in the New Testament. Now, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15, excuse me, verse 5, there's a very interesting verse there. It says this, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. I think in that verse, we find an essential element to a woman's ministry as a prophetess in the early church and in God's appointed order. Is that she's to be under the clear submission of male headship or leadership in the church. Now, in Corinthian culture, being under submission to somebody was evidenced by the wearing of a veil or a head covering. That's what it meant. Some people read 1 Corinthians and they get all tripped out on the head covering things. Well, why aren't the women in our church wearing head coverings? Listen, well, I, I don't even want to tell you stories about people I've met who want to debate these things. You know, and I know it's great for the hat industry and for the veil industry and all of that business. Listen, it's a, you know, what, don't you believe the Bible's for today, brother? No, but yes, the Bible's for today. The principles are eternal. And the principle that's expressed by a woman wearing a head covering in Corinthian culture was she was saying, I am under male submission. I am submitting to the male leadership of this congregation. And that God has appointed two spheres where males are to be in the lead. And that's in the church and in the home. Might I say that as far as I can tell, and if you want to debate the point, maybe we can have a nice debate about it afterwards. As far as I can tell, those are the only spheres in where God has appointed such a, a, a leadership. God doesn't ordain that, that men need to be uh, at the head in politics. You know, God bless women like Margaret Thatcher, right? What a great woman. 
one of the coolest experiences that Ingalil ever had and I ever had in our travels when we sat in at the House of Commons and saw Margaret Thatcher uh, during Prime Minister's Question Hour. You know, during it was a great, great thing. So women uh, don't have to be subordinate in politics. They certainly don't have to be subordinate in the academic world. They certainly don't have to be subordinate in the economic world. No, but, but the Bible says there's two spheres, the church and the home, where male headship is to be respected. And in Corinthian culture, that was expressed by the wearing of a veil. Now, if you want to wear a veil or a head covering in today's culture, nobody looks at it and says, wow, she's under men, she's under male leadership. She's submitting to men's authority. Nobody says that. They say, oh, what a silly hat, or whatever they would say, right? So we believe that the principle is eternal. Absolutely. The way the principle is expressed might differ from culture to culture, right? Because either in the Corinthian culture or in our modern day culture, you could put the most lovely, appropriate head covering or veil or whatever you want to say over a woman's head, but if she's not submitting to male authority in the church, it doesn't matter, right? She's disregarding the principle in any regard. This principle from 1 Corinthians 11.5, I'll read it again. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. The idea is simply here that in the New Testament church, a woman was to use her gifts in the context of order established by the leaders of the church, just like anybody else's gift. Therefore, if there's somebody using a gift or expressing it in an out-of-order way, we as lovingly as possible express to that person, well, I don't think this is really in order. Let's look for a more appropriate way. If God has gifted you with something, if it really is of the Lord, there can be a more appropriate way of expressing it under the leadership of the church. Verse 4 clearly tells us, she judged Israel at that time. Now, some people consider it even more strange that God would raise up a woman to be a judge, a heroic leader for Israel. But Deborah was a woman who was greatly used by God, and she was a woman who respected the people that God put in authority over her, most notably Barak. Now, again, this issue from a New Testament perspective is not, and I'll phrase it again, the issue is not whether or not a woman can be greatly used by God. Of course women can be greatly used by God. I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands, but isn't that just so elementary? I mean, there, there's not a single life here that has not been touched by the prayers, by the love, by the ministry of godly women in some way or another. I mean, it's just so self-evident. The issues are that of headship, of final accountability, and of authority. And God has granted those responsibilities to men, both in the home and in the church. Now, I should tell you that what I'm telling you right now, it's, it's a topic of great controversy in the church today. There are people who really want to debate these points, and I don't mind debating them. Listen, honestly, if you have a different opinion, I'd love to dialogue with you back and forth, because I, I, I've researched it extensively biblically, and I, I look... I'm just happy to tell you what I honestly believe the Bible teaches and what it doesn't teach. But listen, it's to be under the male authority, both in the church and in the home, which gives a great responsibility to the men to step up to the plate and lead the way God tells them to lead, but also to women for them to recognize that leadership. And why? Why is it that God has ordained male leadership in those two spheres? Well, the answer is so obvious, isn't it? 
It's because men are inherently more spiritual than women. <laughs> they laugh when I said that. Now, of course you laugh when I say that, right? Because on its face, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Nobody would think that for a moment, would they? I mean, I say that and you immediately laugh. And well, you should, right? Nobody thinks for a minute because, it's because men are inherently more spiritual than women. No, the reasons have nothing to do with any notion of male superiority. Instead, they have to do, and I'll just list this very quickly. Again, if you want to discuss it in more depth, I'd be pleased to do it. But I'll just give you the four biggest reasons from a New Testament perspective why God has ordained male headship both in the church and in the home. Number one, because it has to do with God's ordained order. That's in 1 Corinthians eleven three. Secondly, it's in light of God's order of creation. That's in 1 Corinthians eleven eight and 9. Thirdly, it's in light of the presence of watching or observing angels. That's in 1 Corinthians 11.10. And lastly, it's in light of the nature of the fall. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Now look, I've studied the arguments of people who would disagree with what I just told you very carefully. And most of their arguments are based on this. They say, well, listen, there's a reason why the New Testament says there should be male leadership in the early church. And that's because women weren't educated in the early church. And so as long as a woman's educated, she's just as, you know, can be in a position of headship or leadership just as much as male. I want you to notice that the biblical reasons I just listened to have nothing to do with women's education. Nothing. Or they say, well, it's because of this or that. If you just look at the reasons Paul gives, we understand it. But let me make it very plain. The reasons have nothing to do with any notion or even the suggestion of female inferiority. There's a very carnal way of approaching this that says this. If I'm not in charge, I am inferior. If I submit, I am inferior. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ blew that idea completely out of the water when he came as a man and lived in perfect submission to his father. God the Father and God the Son are completely equal in their status, in their their position. One is not any more God than the other. Nevertheless, Jesus lived a life of total submission to his Father, demonstrating to us that submission does not mean inferiority, and that headship does not mean superiority. Oh, there's carnal and wicked minds that twist it and take it to mean that, but they're doing this against the teaching of the Bible, not in line of it. Well, in any regard, verse 5 tells us, that the children of Israel came up to her, came up to Deborah for judgment. And often, I find it interesting, often it's assumed that Deborah was allowed leadership because some unspecified man, or maybe even Barak, failed to take the position. While we later see that Barak doesn't seem to be all that he should be, I want you to know there's really no indication in the text that he failed to do something that he should have done in failing to take leadership. I don't think God called Deborah just because some man didn't answer the call. I believe God called Deborah because God wanted to call Deborah. And she did what she did. And she was a wonderful and powerful woman of God used, but as you're going to see, really in sync and in submission with a guy like Barak. Going on now, verse 6. 
Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with the chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Well, this is a prophecy that she gave. She sent for Barak to come. That's in verse 6. And then she says, this is what the Lord God has commanded. That's in verse 6. And the use of that phrase says, God has commanded this. The, the, the implication there is that Barak already knows this. And she's just confirming it. Barak, you know this. God has spoken to your heart. He's spoken to my heart. I want to confirm to you, me as being a prophetess from the Lord, I am confirming to you that God has called you to face the armies of Sisera in battle, and God will be with you. And as it says right there in verse 7, it says, I will deliver him into your hand. She's trying to assure, as a prophetess of the Lord, assure Barak that the Lord is with him and will deliver Sisera into his hand. Now look at Barak's reaction here in verse 8. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you're taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went up with him. Now, this is a very interesting response of Barak in verse 8, where he says, If you will go with me, then I will go. Now, I don't think it was unwise of Barak to want this prophetess from the Lord there with him in the midst of the battle and to be there as they go and to conduct this great big military operation where they would really need to rely on the Lord. I don't think it was wrong for him to want that, but i got to say, it does seem strange that he demands it of Deborah. I'm not going unless you go. If we were going to criticize Barak for anything, we would say that. Barak, why are you doing this? Why are you making it as if the victory relies on Deborah? Yes, she's a wonderful woman of God. Yes, she hears from the Lord. But don't make it rely on her. It relies on the Lord. And therefore, for that, verse 9, Deborah says to Barak, there's going to be no glory for you in the battle. Because of that, Barak would not be the one to personally defeat Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army. But a woman would be the one. Now, if you were to just stop the story right here, you would say, oh, well, Deborah is going to defeat Sisera, right? I mean, if a woman is going to do it, why not Deborah? You know, this sort of, you know, great prophetess of the Lord. Well, that's what we would think, but that's not how it's going to turn out. Verse 10, he went up with 10,000 men under his command. Now, look, that took a lot of courage because they were outmatched technologically. From a technological perspective, all the advantages were to Sisera and to his army. They had the iron chariots. They had the men. They had the strategic advantage. It takes a lot of courage to get together your men and go into a fight where you know you're at a disadvantage. But this is what they did. And look what happens. Verse 11 now Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zaanim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Now Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Herosh Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Verse 11 mentions this fellow Heber, the Kenite. 
and, and that they were just sort of distant descendants of, of uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. You might say, well, who cares? Settle down. You'll get to these guys. This gets, Heber the Kenite comes in later, okay? Verse 13 is the one most interesting to us, though, where it says, Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. Now, friends, I just want to remind you that these were sophisticated and impressive military uh, forms of technology. The armies of Israel were all foot soldiers, all infantry, most of them fighting with crude implements. But they were under the direction of Barak and presumably Deborah. They were at a great disadvantage in this battle. So what happens? Look at it here, verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. I'm going to repeat that line because it's important. Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Hashereth, Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Hallelujah, right? Now I want you to check out how the battle happened. Did you see that in verse 14? It said that Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men. Look, just give yourself a little idea. And I'm not going to throw out maps with arrows and clashing swords and this and that. But when you have an infantry, especially in that day, you had a great advantage if you were up in the hills and the mountains. Because the rough terrain and the hilly terrain was not suited for chariots, right? If you're going to fight a chariot battle, you want a great big open flat plain. That's where you can do your damage. So in the hills, the advantage is to the infantry. On the plains, the advantage is to the chariots. What did Barak do in faith? He came down from the hills and he came down to the plain. And he said, let's fight it on your turf, Sisera. And because God was with him, he won a glorious battle. No, there's just something about that that's beautiful, isn't it? When a man or a woman can just look at what the devil's doing in a certain place and say, listen, I don't even care if we fight the battle on your turf. The Lord is stronger than you and your 900 chariots or whatever it is you got. Let's get it on. God can defeat you even on your own turf. I don't have to stay protected in my own place of security. Let's see God do a great victory even when it would seem to the human eye that the battle is to your advantage. Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men I love what it says in verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera in all his chariots because of Barak's great trust in God. And by the way, should we not give great credit to the armies of Barak in following him in this battle, right? It takes a lot of trust in the Lord to move from your place of strategic advantage and go down to a place of the enemy's advantage, but say that the Lord will fight for us. And God granted them a great victory, even against great odds. So much so, I'll repeat it again. Verse 14, it says that the Lord routed Sisera in all his chariots. Now, we know from Judges chapter 5, that's the song of Deborah that we're going to take a look at in a few minutes, that God helped Israel to victory by bringing a flash flood. And the muddy conditions made the chariots of iron a hindrance, not a help in the battle. 
Can't you just see it laying out in your mind this way? There they are, Sisera and all his men with their 900 chariots, thinking they're invincible because they've got all the advantages and the battle will be fought on their turf. And here come the Israelites down from the hills ready to fight. And the men of Sisera and Sisera himself, they're just licking their chops at the slaughter that they're going to inflict upon the Israelites. And then what does God do? God sends rain. God sends a flash flood. And instantly that nice, flat, dry ground becomes a swampland of mud. How are your chariots going to help you there, Mr., you know, Sisera and all your men? Now they're a hindrance to you, aren't they? You can't get away so fast. You're literally stuck in the mud. And it was a slaughter for the people of Israel. And they won a great victory on that day. No wonder that God could say, or God could say through Deborah in verse 14, Has not the Lord gone out before you? Now that phrase, gone out before you, is a phrase that speaks of a king or a general leading his troops. Therefore, Deborah played a big role in this victory. She didn't command soldiers. She didn't tell them where to go. But what she said to them was so encouraging. She said, listen, the Lord is going out before you into battle. You can go because the Lord is leading you. God, your king, is going to go before his people into battle. And can I just tell you, when God leads the battle, you win. (laughs) Friends, this is what you and I have to do, is we always have to fight from that ground that Jesus Christ has won for us by his great work on the cross. Do you know the Bible says that at the cross, Jesus defeated and disarmed principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places that would array themselves against us. Jesus Christ has defeated them. This is our place of victory, to realize that the Lord God has gone out before us in the sense of leading the charge. He's won the victory. He's at the front of the column. Now listen, I understand in a modern day warfare, right, it's not the general at the front, right? The general isn't at the front of the battle. He's at the back. He's in the headquarters. He's probably watching things from a video screen or something like that. I mean, it's just the way wars are fought today, right? You send just sort of the grunts, the regular ground troops out front. That's not the way Jesus fights. Jesus leads the battle. Here's our problem. We go engrossed fighting our own battles, right? We fight battles sometimes that the Lord doesn't really have anything to do with. And the Lord would just say to us, hey, why don't you come fight the battle? I've already won, and there's victory for you there. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so there was a great rout. It's a glorious thing. What happened to Sisera? Verse 17 is pretty cool. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Told you we'd get back to him. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sesera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then, she said, then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is any man here? You shall say, No. Isn't that great? There they are in the midst of the fight, right? The, the, Cicero and all of his armies are being completely routed. 
just completely. Then they're running for their lives, right? They're in full retreat, and they're running, they're running. And Sisera finds this encampment, this small little collection of tents, right? And who is it? It's Heber the Kenite in his little community there. And they're so excited because, well, we have good relations with Heber the Kenite, and I can find some refuge there. So what happens there? Well, he finds that this woman here, Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite, she says, oh, come hide in my tent. Because it would be a great breach of protocol for any man to go rustling around in a woman's tent, right? They didn't do that. The women had separate tents and you just left the women alone, right? A very strict sort of segregation between the sexes in those cultures. And so he'd be really safe hiding in the tent of Jael. So she says in verse 18, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not fear. There was a peace between Sisera and the people of Jael, according to verse 17. And so it's like, oh, this is wonderful. It's really good. All up until you get to verse 21. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground. For he was fast asleep and very weary. Well, he was even more asleep after that. <laughs> Holy cow, did you just see what, did you just read that? How gnarly is the Bible? This lady walks up to him with the tent peg. Now, in those cultures, it was often the responsibility of the women to put up the tents. You know, you go camping and it's usually the husband and the sons that are, you know, trying in vain to put up the tent. In those cultures, you know, the woman put up the tent. That lady knew how to handle a tent peg and a hammer, didn't she? And man, she hit that tent peg so hard that not only did it go into his skull, which would have been enough to kill him, she drove that tent peg all the way down into the ground. Could you imagine the bloody mess when they had to pull that tent peg up? I mean, this is like, whoa. You don't want to mess around with this lady, right? Well, you don't want to... You don't want to make, you want to want to end up in jail, right? That's her name right there. Oh, come on. It's a little preacher joke. Now, it's fascinating to see that he struck it so hard. She was so determined to kill this man, Sisera, that she drove it all the way down into the ground. Now, what's sort of fascinating about this, it's fascinating to me, is that this woman broke a fundamental principle of hospitality in that day. Well, I'm dead serious. What do you think that? Really? Listen, among those Eastern peoples, it is a sacred thing that if you offer somebody refuge in your home, you protect them. And an Eastern reader would, would read this and go, oh, she did that? She's so treacherous. She's so, wow, this is amazing that she did that. But listen, let's face it. God used her treachery to accomplish his purpose. There's no doubt about it. Sisera deserved to die. He fought against God's people on behalf of a leader who had, I'll read verse 3 from this very chapter to you, who had harshly oppressed the people of Israel. And the lesson for us is very important here. God can make even the evil of man to serve his purposes. I love what it says in Psalm 76 verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Now, that never diminishes the personal responsibility of the one doing the evil. If God uses the evil thing that somebody does, they're still responsible for the evil deed. But God is so great in his sovereign plan and the way that he works all things according to his providence that he can even take an evil act 
and incorporate it into the outworking of his plan. But that's just gnarly, isn't it? Now, as you might expect, Spurgeon waxed eloquent on this in a wonderful sermon titled Sin Slain. And he takes Sisera as a type of sin and his master, because Sisera had a master, right? Jabin. Jabin is a type of Satan. And Spurgeon insisted that we should not be content to merely defeat sin as Barak defeated Sisera in battle, but rather we should not rest until sin is dead. And just as Jael, and we're going to see this, just as Jael asked Barak to look at the dead body of Sisera, Spurgeon said that we should look at the slain body of sin, slain by the work of Jesus, knowing that he's already won the battle for us. I like that analogy. This is what Spurgeon said. I'll quote him right here. He said, if you're content merely to conquer your sins and to not kill them, you may depend upon it. It's the mere work of mortality, a surface work, and not the work of the Holy Spirit. That's a nice analogy there by Spurgeon. Now, verse 23. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, I want you to notice here, the battle against Cicero is important, but it didn't end the battle. It was an important event that God had to follow up on in their lives. And listen, it's just the same here with us, right? I mean, listen, I believe that there are important milestone or breakthrough experiences in the Christian life. I honestly believe that. I believe that tonight could be a a milestone or a breakthrough event for somebody tonight here. God's been speaking to your heart. You've been struggling with him over some sin. There's some Sisera in your life and you need to be like jail and you need to take that tent peg and drive it through that body of sin, right? You're confined. Oh, sin's sort of a baby. You haven't killed it. And and tonight, God's speaking, yes, that's what I got to do. And tonight could be a a beautiful breakthrough night for you. And I believe that God does that in our lives. But listen, you have the breakthrough. You got to carry on the battle after that, right? Are you waiting for some dramatic breakthrough that's going to make your Christian life easy from this day until you get to heaven? Listen, there's one thing that's going to make the rest of your Christian life easy. We call that death, right? (laughs) Until then, it's a struggle until we get to heaven, is it not? And so we believe that there are important milestone or breakthrough experiences. I believe with all my heart, and I believe that tonight may be the night for somebody here. But we don't believe that that takes away the future struggle. No, rather, it equips us for the future struggle to fight it all the more effectively. Now, we're going to continue on here in verse 1 of chapter 5. And we'll go through fairly quickly the song of Deborah. Verse 1. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoan, sang on that day, saying, Now, I I can't get this image out of my mind. If I was really on the ball, if I was a better preacher, I would have had just the right picture to put up on the PowerPoint right now. You see those... uh, old uh, movies. Now, I, look, it's been years since I've seen one of these, but I've seen these old uh, movies with um, Nelson Eddy and Jeanette McDonald, right? The Canadian Mountie and the Curly, and they're both singing together, these, these musicals where the man and the woman sing together. 
Why is I can't get that picture out of my mind when I read this verse one? Then Debrick and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying. Like they're singing this as a duet, right? I don't think it really went like that, but you know, it's just something to think about here. Here it goes, verses one and two. They sang on that day, saying, When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Now, this song is commonly attributed only to Deborah. But, but Barak apparently had some, you know, role in it as well. And what does it say? Verse 2, it says, When leaders lead and when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Friends, that's a glorious principle for the ongoing nature of God's work. What do you need? You need leaders who will lead and you need people who will willingly offer themselves. Leadership is important in any endeavor, especially in the work of God. And God expects leaders among his people to, well, to actually lead. And to show that there's a genuine need for leaders and their leadership. Nevertheless, notice what it also says in verse 2. And when the people willingly offer themselves. Did you know that leaders are nothing without followers? Right? If you want to know if you're a leader, why don't you look around and see if anybody's following you? If nobody's following you, you might not be a leader. But again, the job of people to willingly offer themselves to say, yes, I respect your leadership. I see the hand of God upon you. Let's work together to see the work of God done. Sometimes I like to think of the relationship between the leader and the people as the conductor and the orchestra. Listen, the conductor must lead, right? And the orchestra must follow. But listen, the conductor's not making any music, is he, right? I bet if everything went quiet from the orchestra, you might hear the conductor humming a little bit. You know, hmm, hmm, hmm. But nothing happens without the orchestra. But both of them working together, both of them doing what God has called them to do, then beautiful music is made. Okay, going on here now, verse 3. Hear, O kings... Give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord. This Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. That's kind of interesting because on the one hand, they're looking back to what God did in former days, but they're also relating it to the present day, probably with the presence of a flood and a flash flood that God used to win the battle on that day with Deborah and Barak. Going on now to verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel. Until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. They chose no new gods, and there was war in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. You see, life was hard among Israel's oppressors. Did you see what it said in verse 7? Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel. The weapons were confiscated. There was no peace in the land. They were oppressed by their oppressors. By the way, can I tell you, you can make a spiritual analogy out of this. Satan doesn't only want to oppress the Christian and make them miserable. He also wants to disarm the believer, right? Just as much as Israel was disarmed in the face of its enemies and its oppressors. That's exactly what the devil wants to do in your life. He wants to disarm you. That uh, sword of the spirit that you hold in your hands right now. 
Man, would he love to take that out of your hand? Would he love to cover it in dust as it is at your home, right? Isn't that a terrible thing to have our Bibles covered in dust? I'll quote you something Spurgeon said. I wouldn't say it, but Spurgeon said it, so I'm just quoting him. Now, this is a strong one. Are you ready for this? It's just strong, but you guys are big kids. You can take this. Spurgeon said, there may be enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation in the dust. Well, listen, you take that sword of the Spirit out of your hand, and what defense do you have, right? How can you fight the battle if you take the sword out of your hand? Well, take the shield of faith away. Take the helmet of salvation and the confidence of Jesus' work with you. The devil wants you disarmed. That's what he wants to do to your life. Well, don't allow it. We see the same strategy at work here. Until God raised up somebody, verse 7, until I, Deborah, arose, and then verse 9, she says, My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. You know, it's interesting that Deborah and Barak didn't only care about their job of leadership. They wanted to see other leaders raised up, other leaders exalted. They knew that it was a big job and it needed a lot of people. But verse 9 tells us something about their leadership, that they offered themselves willingly with the people. You see, in verse 2 of this chapter, Deborah made a big deal about the people offering themselves willingly, right? But it's not just the people who need to offer themselves willingly. It's the leaders as well. They must do it as well. Verse 10. Speak, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire, and who walk along the road, far from the noise of the archers among the watering places, for there, there they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. Again, they're calling out to the civic leaders of Israel, those who were judges and those who rode on white donkeys. And he says, listen, for the sake of the villagers in Israel that God wants to deliver, rise up and fulfill your obligations. It's very interesting that a strong theme through this song of Deborah is fulfilling the responsibilities that God gives you. Leaders fulfilling their responsibilities. Followers fulfilling their responsibilities. And you see that happen in the body of Christ. When you see every person doing what they should do, you see the work of God going forth powerfully. I tell you, a great temptation, especially in today's world, is to see the church as a mixture of performers and spectators. Friends, that's very dangerous. Listen, we don't want to be a mixture of performers and spectators as if the people up here on the platform, they're the performers. What a wretched idea. That this would be some kind of performance. No, no, no. We don't want performers on the platform and spectators in the sanctuary. No, no, no. We want to all be workers unto the Lord, co-laborers for Jesus Christ. There's very much that spirit throughout this song. Going on here to verse 13, as you'll see, it says, Then the survivors came down and the people against the nobles. The Lord came down from me against the mighty from Ephraim. There were those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Mahir, rulers came down. And from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. 
And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah and Issachar. So was Barak sent into the valley under his command. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed behind the Jordan. And why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed in by his inlets. Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. I love this. Deborah goes and sort of like an honor roll of Israel. Here's the people who really stepped up and did the work, right? There they were. Ephraim, West Manasseh, Benjamin, Zebulun, Issachar, Naphtali. Man, they stepped up and they fought in the battle and they saw the victory won. But then she turns and she looks at some of these other tribes, right? Hello, Reuben, East Manasseh. Dan, Asher, where were you? Look, I, I just want to make a simple point from this. And I, look, I, I, I try to tread carefully here. I, I'm not here to shovel out guilt or, to, or worse yet to manipulate you. But I, I just, I'd be irresponsible if I didn't draw this very simple point. God sees who steps up and who doesn't, Right? The tribes that stepped up, they're they're noted in Deborah's song. The ones that didn't, they're noted too. Verse 19. The kings came and fought. Then the kings kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrents of Kishon swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, Oh, my soul, march on in strength. Then the horse's hooves pounded. The galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse, Meroz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly, because they did not come to help, did not come to the help of the Lord to help, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. This battle was fought from the heavens in the sense that God sent the rain and the floods that made the Canaanite chariots of no use. It says there, The torrent of Kishon swept them away. And apparently the people of Miraz, they did not step up to the plate. Curse Miraz, said the angel of the Lord. Now, I told you previously when we were looking at chapter 4 that Jael would have been seen as a treacherous woman by many in that day because she violated these basic principles of hospitality that ran very deep in that culture. I do have to point out, though, in great fairness... That Deborah has nothing but praise for her. Verse 24. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched, I can't believe this. She stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera. She pierced his head. She split and struck through this temple. At her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. At her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Man, this is tough stuff. She can see it in her mind, right? The hand on the peg. There's the hammer. Whammo. Split his head open. And then just to emphasize, just to rub it in even more, it says, at her feet he sank. Deborah wanted to increase Sisera's shame by pointing out that it was a woman who ended his life, right? 
And for a warrior culture like that, that would have been a big shame that, that you got, you know, snookered in by this woman who split your head with a tent peg. All right, verse 28. The mother of Sisera looked through the window and cried out through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariots? Her wisest ladies answered her. Yes, she answered herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil to every man a girl or two? For Sisera, plunder of dyed garments, plunder of garments embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter. Oh man, Deborah's playing rough here. You know what she's doing? She's thinking of the mother of Sisera saying, Oh, where's my boy? Isn't he coming home? I'm sure he's winning the battle. I'm sure he's really gathering a lot of spoil. Oh, I'm sure they're taking so many prisoners. Uh, Actually not. Actually, he's dead in a pretty gruesome way. Verse 31. Thus, let all your enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. So the land had rest for 40 years. Can you say that tonight? Can you say, let all your enemies perish, O Lord? To love God is to hate his enemies. A man or a woman is defined as much by who their enemies are as by who their friends are. And friends, the point on that that I'd want to emphasize is not you should start making in the margin of your Bible right now a list of who your enemies are, right? Write down a bunch of names. So good, I'm going to hate those people. Can I remind you what the Bible says to us in the book of Ephesians? That we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the forces of wickedness in high places. Ladies and gentlemen, those are your real enemies. Or can I say if you want to take a look at another enemy, take a look at your own fleshly nature, Right? Sometimes we blame the devil too much, don't we? It's our fleshly nature that we need to deal with. Some of you need to stop making excuses and blaming the devil. You need to take a look at your own life and say, God, I want to take this fleshly nature and have it crucified with Jesus Christ himself. Instead, let us be like those. Verse 31, let those who love him be like the sun. How much better that is. Those who love him to be like the sun than it is to be like one of God's enemies. It's a glorious song here, is it not, in uh, Judges chapter 5? But could I just remind you of the very basic point on which I'll end. They had a reason to praise God, did they not? Don't you have an even greater reason to praise God? As wonderful as that salvation was that they received in the days of Deborah and Barak, God gives you an even more precious gift. Shouldn't we sing to him with even more heart? Shouldn't we worship him for all the good he's done for us? If Deborah and Barak could sing a song about it, so can we. If they could remind themselves of the great victory that God won on their behalf, we can remind ourselves of the great victory he's won for us, and we can live in it and walk in it and see God free us from the bondages that trip us up all the time.